Hello, and welcome to the ASHI podcast. My name is Gonzalo Berman, and I serve as the Editor-in-Chief of Antimicrobial Stewardship and Healthcare Epidemiology. With the ASHI podcast, we hope to share content that is relevant, novel, thought-provoking, and consistent with the diversity of perspectives that we seek with ASHI. A special thanks goes out to the editorial team and, of course, to Shea for their ongoing support. We hope you will enjoy this podcast. Hello, and welcome back to the ASHI podcast. I'm really excited about today's episode. I'm Gonzalo Berman, Editor-in-Chief of ASHI. I'm here with Associate Editor Pranavi Chiramaju, who's joined us for her initial ASHI podcast. Is that correct, Pranavi? Yes, that's right. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. It's going to be a lot of fun. We have two very special guests today from South Africa. We're going international today here to discuss a paper that was recently published in ASHI titled Facilitators and Barriers to Implementing Antimicrobial Stewardship Programs in Public South African Hospitals. Great title. A lot of insight here with Christy Niesing and Petra Bester from South Africa. So welcome, ladies. Pleasure to have you on the discussion today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. And uh, we're really excited to disseminate our results, not only in a published paper, but in other ways as well. So well done to you guys. Thank you. Well, I guess we're going to turn the floor over to Pranavi to start off some of the questions that we have and see where our discussion takes us. So please take it away, Pranavi. Sure. So Christy and Petra, if I may call you by your first names, the paper was very impressive. Great work. Before we get into the details in the paper, can you give us a, an idea of how healthcare system is set up in South Africa, and particularly the Northwest province where your study was conducted? So South Africa is the country the world known for a great inequality. We've got a dichotomous health system. We've got a population of approximately 62 million people of which less than 16% have a form of private health insurance. Mm. The rest of the country is fully dependent on state-provided health care. This state-provided health care is predominantly primary health care driven by clinics mm -hmm. with upwards referral pathway to levels of hospitals, level one, two, or three, depending on speciality, up to an academic hospital. We've got nine provinces. Okay. This research focused on one of the nine provinces. Okay. It's a province within South Africa. It's quite north. Mm -hmm. It borders with Botswana. Mm -hmm. And it's a mining and farming province. Okay. And it's approximately 7% of the total population of the country will uh -huh. then subside within this province. I see. I just want to go back to one thing that you said earlier, level one to level three, which is the higher level? Is level one higher or level three higher? Level three is the highest. So if I can quickly explain a level one hospital is called a district hospital. Right. You might have a family physician there, maybe one medical officer, uh -huh. um, basic diagnostics and maybe theater for appendicectomy or a cesarean section. A level two hospital is a regional hospital, but more specialities, level three will then be all your specialties up until maybe neurosurgery and then referral to an academic hospital. Okay, that's very helpful to understand. One more question to paint the context, if I may. Your study is about antimicrobial stewardship programs or lack of them. Are they 
integral part of infection prevention programs or are they separate and distinct from infection prevention programs? How are they set up? I think all the role players are aware that antimicrobial stewardship guidelines are there, that we have a national program. Mm -hmm. But that's certain done, it's quite distant from the implementation there. And that was actually the reason why this research was necessary. It's because of ideal guidelines, ideal program, but the implementation then fails. Got it. Thank you. Gonzalo? Yeah, so it seems like what you're telling us is across South Africa, like anywhere else, is that there's an ideal of antimicrobial stewardship and there's kind of a philosophical goal, but there's yeah. a disconnect between that philosophical goal and the reality on the front lines. And you're the first to really document or look at that in a very structured academic fashion. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And it's we could not find really any evidence of this being done in the public hospitals. Mm -hmm. ah. Might be in private, but the public not. Yet it is the largest system in our country. And your study really reveals a handful of deficiencies in different areas or buckets. Is that correct? Or yes. Yeah. Tell yeah. us about some of those and, you know, tell the readers yeah. what are the biggest concerns that you have across those different columns or buckets of deficiencies? We developed a conceptual framework that you can refer to in the paper. But I think the disparity between the actual framework or program or guidelines that was published by the government and the support to actually implement that in the hospital, that is the biggest challenge. You can break that down into fragmented thing, issues that might include access to specific specialist services and even aspects like leadership where there's no leadership taken in terms of antimicrobial stewardship. And very important to that is to, to, to know that different health professionals that all play a, a very important role in antimicrobial stewardship actually views antimicrobial stewardship differently in the health system. So individually, the doctors feel, well, I want to do antimicrobial stewardship, but due to the absence of laboratory services, et cetera, et cetera, I cannot do it. The nurse practitioner again said, I acknowledge antimicrobial stewardship. It is necessary, but I have to enter this from an infection control perspective, not clearly knowing where they fit in. And then the pharmacist enters this area. And then the pharmacist feels that I am the actual person that knows about medicine. And I, I should be the person that must be playing a, a more prominent role in this whole conversation. And so we found one of these barriers was this inability of the multidisciplinary team to actually, at the bedside of the patient, be able to, in that team relationship, communicate what must happen with antimicrobial stewardship. That was one of the interesting barriers. They've got a different perspective and they struggle as a team to communicate. Fascinating, fascinating. Pranavi, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think the, the role clarity between the physician and the pharmacist on the antimicrobial stewardship team, there is a need for that. And a lot of times the two team members actively communicate and resolve, but it's not 
a recommendation from a national guideline or something. It's something that's left to the two individuals to sort that out. It can be a good thing or a bad thing, but I don't see that as too different in South Africa compared to anywhere else. It's the same in the U.S. as well. I'm curious about, the paper talks a lot about the challenges and the barriers that you identified. Were there any bright spots? Like, were you surprised by any positive findings? And I have a couple more follow-up questions, but maybe we could start here. So you can see we are both smiling because in South Africa, you always get these pockets of success. So yes, we could not find one perfectly implemented AMS program or project or intervention in a hospital, but we did find individuals that were very serious about antimicrobial stewardship. Nowhere in this process did we find any health professional that was opposed to antimicrobial stewardship. So there was definitely buy-in in the system. Something else that we found that was also extremely positive was that there is this notion that there must be some form of leadership. So if you have a program, there must be some form of leadership. Now there's not maybe a formally appointed leader for the team. Mm -hmm. And some way, naturally, organically, a health professional will then stand up mm -hmm. and start some form of awareness where they are. Yeah. So it's very much the human factor, focusing around the human yeah. beings, mm -hmm. but that was definitely present, despite <laughs> lack of resources and all yeah. the other barriers, as you've seen. Yeah, it's awesome that you put a spotlight on the individual passion and interest that sort of drives things forward. In any case, any initiative that's fundamental and foundational to this success. My follow-up question is, so a lot of your data tables, they, you obviously summarized very nicely the answers to the questions that you posed to the interviewers, interviewees. A lot of the results were like right in the middle, like 40% to 60% for strongly agree to agree as the percent positivity, except for like a handful I could pick. And I was very interested. It's almost like a, there's a line in the middle of the 30 participants that you selected. So what are your thoughts on that? Why is it so divided in spite of the interest and passion there is? Pranavi, we actually don't know. We need to go and research that. Yeah. We, we had a discussion before this podcast to make sense of it for ourselves. Yeah. So opinions was not really the main aim of the research. That was a secondary analysis that we've done. But yes, definitely a question that we have to ask from the beginning through the data, because we did quota sampling, we deliberately wanted to have all these different health professionals. So throughout, you could see the health professionals have their own ideas. Yeah. Very much linked to the discipline. Yeah. I'll get one more burning question out of my mind before I turn it back to Gonzalo. I mean, it's very clear that you felt strongly about this question, research question, and you uh, went ahead and did it. What was the process like after you decided to do the study. Tell us from start to finish and keep similar-minded individuals and professionals in other countries or in your own country who want to do studies like this to sort of up the game with antimicrobial stewardship or healthcare epidemiology. 
Explain to us what the process was like. Can I, can I go first? Thank you. I can't wait for this question. So you will find that we we recruited five different hospitals within this province. So firstly, after we got permissions within our university and ethical approvals, we had to go through this whole process of getting approval within the health care system. That took a few months. A lot of permissions, which means for fellow researchers, you have to drive it. You have to, in some cases, the student had to get into his vehicle and drive and almost, you know, keep that permission letter in front of people to sign off. So that was a major impact on timelines. So you plan the perfect study. But in reality, when you go, especially into public health systems here with us, there's a gray area beyond out of control with timelines. So it was a lot of aspects to get your permissions. Once we got our permissions, Getting busy health professionals to sit still for an interview is extremely busy. It's difficult. And in this case, 30 different health professionals were approached. Because it was quota sampling, in other words, we wanted to have saturation with our nurses, saturation with our doctors, saturation with our pharmacists. We continued with data collection until we... I'm sure that we had that saturation. So you did these, if you don't mind me interrupting you, you did these interviews in person? Your study team did these interviews in person? Yes. Wow, amazing. Face-to-face interviews. Then these interviews went through a process of transcription and then through expert analysis, we analyzed it and co-analyzed it. And then this methodology of Sally Thorne, interpretive descriptive design was selected beforehand because it's a methodology that urges you not just to give results, but to give results in such a way that practice can use the results. So we talk about a secondary analysis whereby we grouped the results already into a form of a conceptual framework for the reader. So that's most impressive, Pranavi. Very impressive. Impressive. So what we're learning from Christy and Petra is that nothing's going to stop them. They're going to keep going Absolutely. And going and going and going. I love it. It's a beautiful lesson for all of us, yeah. in, you know, struggling with stewardship and other things related to healthcare. So I have a question or follow up on that. What advice do you have for our listeners, our readers of ASHI, who are having similar kind of challenges in getting projects done, moving the needle? What would you say to them? I think the most important thing that we've established over the years is to already have your networks in your communities. So in our research unit in Alter, we've been establishing strong networks with the health system as well as with local communities over the past 14, 15 years. And those networks are actually what's gold to us. So if you get to a dead end, you can pick up the phone and find your contact and say, listen, this is what we want to do. We got permission, but now we can't get participants. Can you maybe assist us? So networks and relationships with people in your network and to protect those relationships, for us, that is really important. It sounds like a seasoned journalist talking about the relationships with sources and, and networks. Wow, it's really impressive. You know, people used to have a Rolodex. Remember those things? Where all of us are old enough now to talk about Rolodex. No one has Rolodexes anymore. But think of it as a kind of figurative Rolodex of collaborators 
and facilitators for your, for your research projects and continue to nurture that so you can go back to them to really push projects forward as barriers arise. And we all know that barriers do arise. Now, I wanted to bring come back to something to table three, actually, on your paper. So switching back to your manuscript, and it talks about importance of, of a supportive organizational culture. I mean, I'm not sure what else we can add to the, to the discussion of culture that hasn't been said. But if I'm reading your table correctly, it seems that the doctors are not all that encouraged by hospital management. Does that sound right? At least compared to the nurses and to the pharmacists. Why is that? So I think healthcare professional. So I can, from the outside in, maybe come in here. Our healthcare professionals are trained with a very specific scope of practice. Mm -hmm. And the nurses aren't necessarily trained to take on the leadership. So they want to, to have the strong leadership. But I was very concerned with some of the answers, especially from the nurses, that I do think was not necessarily entirely what they wanted to say because they were a bit hesitant that it might have a negative impact for them. So it is a very hierarchical system with your doctor is, sorry, I don't want to step on toes here, but your doctor is dominant and he knows and he says what happens. And then your pharmacist is your second in command who would guide it, and your nurse, even though they are the actual change makers and they are the people in these hospitals that make these things happen, they're the foot soldiers. So from my perspective, that is how I would yeah, read those results. I have some time to think, so can I also, <laughs> of course. Can I also respond? Yes. I also think what is at play here is, on the one hand, this passionate medical practitioners that feel that they have to fight. They have to fight for a specific type of antibiotic. They have to fight to, to prescribe something that's not on the essential drug list or a, a specific antibiotic that must be a process of motivations. And then they become frustrated. If they cannot have access to laboratory services, they cannot do a culture, their differential diagnosis only brings them to a certain point. So I think there is a bit of frustration with management in the broader sense, which is actually positive. It's fighting for the patient and it's medical doctors that want to do the right thing, but they don't necessarily can do. So positive frustration is channeled in the right way to make change. Yeah, I guess we can add a little bit of being busy and a certain personality type to this, but definitely it is also fighting for what you believe in. That can be difficult if you are in a hospital with a specific antimicrobial regime, but you want to go a certain route. Unfortunately, as the medical doctor, you will have to fight to get that route. Correct. So, your thoughts? Yeah, if I can ask a follow-up question. So, unlike Gonzalo, I recently moved over to the healthcare system leadership role. So I could be categorized as hospital management, although I would push back on that. So how do we get health system leadership and management on board with antimicrobial stewardship initiatives? Because we can't not engage them. As physicians, we love to hate them because they hold the purse strings. 
So what's a productive way to do this? And it's the same story across the countries. What are your thoughts having worked on this study for so long? And In this specific event, that what became quite clear was guidelines by itself needs a clear governance structure, a clear governance structure to be implemented. So people must know who is the, who will be the leader of the team. That leader of the team must have a negotiation in his or her workload, for example, but there must be a point of clear governance. Who is responsible, accountable, how will you be done, held accountable, and what will be all the role players that needs to be consulted in this process? For me, that was and remains absent in the public health system. Okay. And that, I think, ties back to what Christy said a little bit earlier about the hierarchy and some people not feeling empowered to speak across the authority gradient. So how can anyone help? How can um, we help? So I, I think the most important thing is you need a jockey, once again, if you understand your stakeholders. So as hospital management, identify somebody who is passionate about this and who has the knowledge or you can empower him with the knowledge, but find a jockey. That's always, if in any project that you want to manage, find that jockey. And that's why it's so important to understand your stakeholders in your organization and their strengths. And then you empower that jockey and you also give him authority, but that's also, as Prof. Petra said, part of his task agreement. So we also implemented a wellness program in our province, and that's also part of what we found is that it has to be a kind of a top-down, bottom-up approach where it meets in the middle, where you have the top-down support and authority, but the bottom-up, the, the right person with the authority, and it's part of his task agreement. Those are terrific insights. Amazing. Now, let's make sure everyone's clear here. The Pranavi, switch to her for a second, is in administration, but she's a benign administrator. She's on our side, right, Pranavi? Absolutely, Gonzalo. I love the comments. And, you know, frequently when I work with mentors here, we talk about manuscripts. And I really like the discussion. Those know my bias about discussions. That I think it's a place where people can shine with their, their what and the so what of their paper. And it should lead to kind of a conclusion that gives us some clarity. And if I may, I'd like to read your very last sentence because I think it's, I love it. It says, however, the first step critical to implementing AMS in Northwest province is engaging with government policymakers and healthcare leaders to obtain adequate support. You've given us or you've given everyone a rallying cry. So what happens next? <laughs> yeah, so uh, we definitely need to take this further. This is not necessarily one of our main projects that we drive, <laughs> but uh, we're in a process of really driving the support of the entire healthcare system in the Northwest province so based search, on research. In search of resources, you're in search of a jockey. Find that jockey. That could be the title of the follow-up paper, Jockey Found. We found the jockey. We found the jockey. The process of finding a jockey. Yes, that would be very helpful. You know, we could turn this into a series here. This is There's a great methods paper for us, yeah? Well, great. So we typically close with kind of an an unscripted question. So here's my unscripted question. You're obviously very accomplished individuals writing beautiful papers, doing great work. 
But here's my question for you. What books are on your nightstand? What do you read at night? What inspires you? I've got approximately seven books on my nightstand. If you want seven to books. <laughs> One for every night of the week. <laughs> I you like know it. what? At this stage, I can definitely say I've started to read the book called Mac Mafia by Misha Glenis. Oh. And it is a very interesting book explaining how globalization of which pharma is actually part of the process. McDonald's becomes an analogy mm. of a globalized process, but it opened up also the shade part of international trade and opened up a world of more organized crime today. And what we see as symptoms as all of organized crime at this present day. So that's on my nightstand, Gonzalez. How about Christy? Hi. Favorite reading material is qualitative research methodologies and creative qualitative research methodologies. So currently, so I'm a constructivist in my research paradigm. So I'm exploring, yeah, basically the history and the development of constructivism. But then I have to switch off my brain because otherwise I won't sleep at all. Mm -hmm. So then I have something really fictional that I just read two or three pages, and I really like something like Erin Morgenstein's The Night Circus. That is a, a fantasy to just take me into my fantasy dream world. <laughs> Switch up my brain. <laughs> so you live in sleep at times, qualitative research methodology, and you read fiction to put you to sleep. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Got it. Wonderful, wonderful discussion. Pranavi, what are your closing thoughts here? No, I'm very inspired by Christy and Pietra. And thank you so much for the work that you do and the insights that you gave us. And uh, I loved having this conversation with you both. It's been a huge honor. Uh, ladies, we've learned a lot from you. Really great contribution to ASHI, to the international literature on antimicrobial stewardship. We look forward to hearing from you in the future, maybe on how to find that jockey for your programs. But we'll have to discuss with the Shea, the Shea leadership as to whether or not we can do the next podcast in South Africa. Give oh, them that's a feel. Okay. Wonderful. That'd be amazing. Well, thank you both. Thank you, Pranavi. It's been an absolute pleasure and honor. This concludes the ASHI podcast. Please tune in as we continue to explore things in antimicrobial stewardship and healthcare epidemiology. And as always, if you have an interesting idea or a pitch, send it to us. We're always open to new ideas. Thank you.